for our last speaker, I introduce Kelly Wilder. Kelly's great triumph in life was to survive four years of crap supervision. So, so well, well, well done, Kelly. On you go. It wasn't that bad. I'm, I'm impressed that you survived me being your doctoral student. <laughs> Um, so it's really nice when you want to give a talk and, and someone introduces your talk so well. It's going to sound almost like Chitra and I have written our talks together, although we haven't spoken in ages. Um, and I love it that we are somehow interested in the same thing suddenly. That makes me more confident that this is actually something. Um, I want to talk to you about what for me is, been a fair, is a fairly new idea, so I'm going to do an experiment, which is I'm going to fly this idea, and if anyone objects really strenuously in such a way that will make me give it up, then I might. Um, uh, so it's really interesting because um, Chitra is, is, was working on this idea that laboratories accumulate stuff, that is working from the experiments through to the collection. And what I want to do is work that backwards, interestingly. So from the stuff to the material experiments. Um, it's like a strange yin-yang counterpart to, to Chitra's talk. So we've already talked about the stuff that gets left at the end. And I want to talk about the stuff um, uh, that we get to, um, that how, how they're made. And what I want to do is I want to test out this idea that a protocol might be a good way of thinking about how we get at something other than the photographic image. So in talking about the place of photography, I'm going to not talk about photography, if I can. Um, not very well, because um, it's, it's difficult to not to talk about something when you've got stuff. Um, so I'll do the best I can when I've only got you stuff to show you. So um, before I start, the, the idea behind using something like a term like protocol um, is difficult because it has a lot of definitions. Um, but it means both an official record of something happening, but also the procedure for carrying out how that happened. And it seems to me that photography does both of these things very well. Um, most attention, though, has been paid to the record that photography is, that is, the record of what happened and not to the process that photography is organizing in order to make that happen. And partly it's because we're left with objects. We're not, we're not left with the process. We're left with the stuff that comes out of it, the record bit. Um, and these objects are really seductive, and I love objects just as much as the next person, or perhaps more, I don't know. Um, but what I want to talk about is to try and turn away from that and wonder about what what photographs might be doing to the whole setup of experiments in order for us to get the objects that we've got. Um, this isn't exactly a new concept. I mean, ever since Ian Hacking published Representing and Intervening in 18, 1983, um, this idea that scientific representation has been tied to instrumental intervention has been at the forefront of a lot of discussions about um, uh, uh, how we see, how we do experiments, how we know what we know, um, and how we deal with this notion of image making or mark making um, as a practice that's integral to the sciences. In that sense, what I want to say is then rooted again in these decades of work in, in STS, um, 
But I think it's also very relevant to the place of photography as well. Um, so in 2014, um, their representation in scientific practice was revisited. Um, it revisited the 1990 volume representation in scientific practice. Um, and it dealt very much with this idea that there is a kind of special sense, as, as Martin Kemp wrote in that volume, of conviction about these kinds of record, photographic records that are made in the processes of doing science. Um, and it struck me on reading this that the images very quickly turn from being practices to being records. And that they are both at once the protocol for making things and also the record of what was then made. So they are themselves the record of their own protocol, um, which makes them quite interesting objects. Um, and it seems that this transformation deserves a little bit of scrutiny if we're going to talk about the place of photography. It also occurred to me that we spend an inordinate amount of time talking about only the records, at, perhaps at the expense of discussing the practices, and in fact, one of the great flaws of this paper is that I'm going to show you records in order to talk about practices. And I think that's part of the reason why we talk about the records so much, because it's very hard to show you pretty pictures of the practices. Um, and I want to say before I start that I, I have been, part of my turning away from the objects has um, been influenced very heavily by uh, Damien Hughes' work on uh, photography and the formation of ecology and Nicolas de Gurn's work on um, the processes of innovation within Kodak's uh, uh, laboratories, research laboratories. And so they've turned, they've managed to turn me away from my sort of stubborn course toward the meaning of things, the epistemology of uh, whatever's in photographic uh, objects and to the meaning of practices. So I owe them quite a debt. It was a hard fight, but I think they've won. Um, it also is a combination of my looking lately at photographic catalogs and thinking about the bureaucratic processes um, that are entailed by photographic catalogs. Because I was doing that at the same time I was looking at photographic practices, they seem to have merged and started to inform each other. And I actually think it's quite a fruitful way to think about what is going on in photographic practices. But maybe you will disagree, perhaps violently disagree, in which case I can be talked out of it. Um, so it might be a way of getting around the objects. If we think about protocol, it might be a way of getting around this problem of having so many archives and objects that we are continuously drawn back to talking about them at the expense of talking about the processes that made those objects. Um, and this means that we're not going to talk so much about photography as a communicator of scientific results, um, but instead talk about photography as a way of, as an organizing principle for some scientific inquiry. And I know that flips things a bit on its head. We've always talked about the sciences and how they formed photography and how photography is a tool of the sciences. I want to give photography perhaps a more prominent role. And, and for some people, that may not be an entirely comfortable thing to do. But in some cases, photography has indeed produced science as opposed to the other way around. And so I want to concentrate on the material of photography and how it gets painstakingly inserted into the sciences and then becomes the standardizing principle for some of those scientific practices. 
And in that way, photography somehow disappears as photography and it becomes the science. So if you speak to a spectroscopist, you, you say, oh, you've made all these photographs. And they say, no, I, I'm, I don't make any photographs. I do spectroscopy. Um, that is, and if you speak to an astronomer who is making glass plates, they say, no, I'm not photographing. I'm doing astronomy. That is, it's a way of photography disappearing so far into the internal workings of a particular field that actually it becomes the field in some way. Now, in, in obviously, in some disciplines, it's much more um, uh, it's much more pronounced than in other disciplines. Uh, and I think the discussions in art history are farther ahead than those in science because they don't want to admit that photography has changed the sciences um, in the way that art historians will readily admit that photography has deeply changed the way we study art. I don't know why that resistance is so strong, um, but it's there. If you, and for that reason, I don't want to talk so much about firsts, but about standardization. But before I do that, I want to say that photography was really difficult to insert into a lot of sciences. And it was difficult in a lot of ways, and I show you um, uh, some of the Donet and Foucault of daguerreotype, micro microscopy daguerreotypes. Um, these are the ones at the Welcome, but if you're lucky enough to come to the Museum of the History of Science, you can see some actual ones in the flesh, so to speak, or in the silver. Uh, it was an incredibly difficult process. I'm showing you this because what they had to do to, in order to obtain daguerreotypes through a microscope of objects that are inherently instable and require lots of light, um, was to change the light source, change the direction of the light source, change the color of the things that it was going through. Um, and then in order to get it into print, which is where science really belongs, it was yet another process to have them engraved and to have them engraved after drawings made of the daguerreotype, et cetera, et cetera. And these, uh, these daguerreotypes, these ones happened to have been made by Foucault in 1843, and they were translated then into Alfred Donnet's uh, um, course on microscopy, the text of which was published in 1844, but it took so long to make the atlas that the atlas wasn't published until a year later to give some impression. So there was even a delay about how to get these images to its public, and the public was already there because the book had been out for a year before the atlas actually followed it very slowly and clunkily. Um, and it's become a kind of famed example of early use of photography. But what's interesting is that photography sort of stayed in microscopy um, and when you open any kind of manual about doing pretty much anything, what you will see are, is usually a kind of diagram or a schematic of the setup. And very quickly, microscopy setups included photography. And you can see um, this is two ways of viewing the same setup. These were, um, uh, and you can see the, the place for the film, where there's a little arrow there up at the top and here on the side. In all of these diagrams, what you will see is photography inserted into the process of doing something. And it's not so easy to make microscopical images appear on photographic materials. Photographic materials in the 19th century, of course, um, were only sensitive to certain wavelengths of light. And therefore, you needed to color your objects very carefully. The color of your light source needed to be carefully calibrated. Um, you had to do all sorts of things. You have to point light in certain directions in order for photographs to even appear. It's not as if it, it is benign. Once you place photography at the center of what you are doing, the entire setup has to be rearranged around making that image appear and appear in a kind of strength and in some sort of corresponding way. 
um, so that it looks on the photograph like you expect it to look. And people used all sorts of preparations, they used staining materials, they used filters, etc. So in one way I want to talk about the protocol that requires you to change your experiment in order to accommodate photographic materials. That's one way in which photography as a protocol can be considered a kind of transformative event for sciences. Um, oh, and here you see another one, which is an early um, transmission, electron transmission microscope. I'm not sure if you can see it. In the schematic drawing um, on the side, uh, there is a plate camera from photography right there at the bottom. Um, and it's been drawn in. So the entire, this huge apparatus, which you can see on your left, that sits inside a, a laboratory, was actually constructed around a camera. The camera's at the center. It's the heart of the experiment. Everything else is working around it. And this is what I mean by photography setting a protocol that then produces certain objects. And you can see the objects at the bottom of this exhibition poster. Um. Raman spectroscopy is very much the same way. Um, a lot of spectroscopy was, anyway, um, uh, very dependent on photography and on photographic materials even before photography was invented um, or announced. Klaus Henschel categorized spectroscopy as a particular visual culture, and I think we're, we're very, Chitra and I are very similar in, in being curious about the notion of what that visual culture might be and what characterizes some elements of science as a visual culture as opposed to any other kind of laboratory culture or um, experimental culture. Um, and he argues pretty persuasively that visual images rest at the center of spectroscopic um, uh, work, methods. And, um, but it, it's interesting to me that actually it's photography. It's not just visual images. And photography changed a lot of the way we consider um, how spectroscopy uh, was done. Raman spectroscopy, for instance, um, was begun in the, in the early 20th century um, by C.V. Raman, and he published his results on these uh, factors of diffraction. And they me measured them all photometrically. And what happens is they, they send a monochromatic light, what we would call laser light, um, over a molecule, and it scatters light off to, the, off to the side. And the photographic plate is waiting on the side to collect, over a long period of time, this kind of scattering thing. And from, from measuring these, these, um, the, the differences between the lines, you can find out all sorts of things about molecular bonds, etc. The entire experiment is set up around the capabilities of photography in pre-World War I. Um, and those, those things changed as photography changed. So the more capable photography came to be, the more photography could be aligned to particular wavelengths of light, the, diff the more you could change your experimental setup. So photography is both the result of, but also um, the reason for that particular experimental setup. Um, and that, in that way, I feel that a protocol is perhaps a good way of describing it. Um, I came across this very interesting um, spectroscopic uh, small spectrum, and I was reading the bottom, the base of it, looking at the Crookes papers, and I started thinking. It made me start thinking about what it was that photography was doing as this protocol. So, what is it doing anyway? Why should we be worried about it? Um, and this says that it's it's a standardizing, it's a method of standardizing reference lines that Crookes thought up. Um, by comparing it then with iron lines, he, he says, at the, ultraviolet, uh, at the ultraviolet end of a quartz prism. 
And I find it interesting that photography is very often, and, and I've found quite a few of these things. I'm just showing you one because I promised Geraldine I would hurry and finish on time. And uh, you all want a glass of wine anyway. So <laughs> what's interesting about these is you find many, many photographs that are about standardizing procedures. Um, and these are photographs of experimental setups or photographs resulting from these experimental setups that are telling us that not only is the experimental setup working, but that photography is working in the same way. That is, it's there controlling itself. So again, you have this photographic object that is telling us that the photographic setup is working as photography should, which is quite an interesting way of kind of self-evaluation even of a photographic setup. And it's, the more you peel this apart, the weirder it gets. And you find this in all sorts of disciplines. That is, they used photography to photograph within the, um, uh, within the chemical manipulations in industrial labs. They would photograph the molecular arrangement of photographic emulsions to know that the, photographic, the photograph of the photograph was telling you that photography was in fact being produced. Um, and this happens a lot. And these, these images are mostly gone. Um, they, they exist almost entirely in the pages of scientific journals, which is most, where most of this archive of photographic science stuff exists. We don't really have bits and pieces so much anymore. We mostly have the results of experiments as they are written up in formal papers. But every once in a while, you do find them. Um, in strange places. And it isn't even um, confined to black and white. We often think of science photographs and um, the whole notion of a kind of uh, standardizing principle of science as being something that has to be done in monochrome because it's more reliable. It's just more true, isn't it? That's why all our historical documentaries come out in black and white. Um, but in actual fact, a lot of the, there was a, a huge wave of the use of color as a kind of standardizing procedure for checking, especially industrial materials. Um, and this usually happened when they would examine industrial materials under polarized light, as you can see here. This is a, a blown glass instrument. And when it, would, when it was first formed um, under polarized light, you can see the kind of stress shapes that are at each place where the glass was moved or arranged. And by annealing that glass, by, by giving it a kind of heat-based treatment, um, you could make those stress lines disappear. That is, by, by warming it sufficiently, placing it under a particular piece of treatment, re-photographing it under the same conditions, one could use color photography to understand uh, manufacturing processes and to improve manufacturing processes. So these were done very, mu very much in industrial labs. This happened to have been done uh, in an industrial lab by, by, of Bayer, uh, who is also an, uh, an aniline dye maker, and they are the ones who are actually making all the aniline dyes for color photography, but that's another story for uh, another time, perhaps. But it's interesting that these, this idea of control and standardization is not actually limited in, in its photographic palette. That is, you still can begin to understand, at least through the 50s and 60s. And now, again, um, in, in digital, this, this idea that color is in some way reliable and standardized is coming back, though they are in some way also commercially made. So to wrap up on time, I'm going to stop there and not talk about um, any more um, uh, manifestations of this, but to go back to the original idea and ask the question whether or not protocol is a good way of thinking about, thinking past the photographic object. 
and into what made the photographic object come out in the first place and how our photographic objects and their materials um, uh, changing the internal structure of how those photographic objects are made. That is, how do we peel back that layer? Um, and I hope, aside from seeing through all the cracks in this very short and extremely sketchy talk, that you can see that it actually is useful to think about it as both a document and as the process for producing that document. Thank you.